How are y'all doing? It's New Orleans. You got to be doing right. Longest password ever about to put in. Uh, thank y'all so much for having me. Um, my name is Otis Pickett. I'm going to be talking to you tonight. I've changed the title a little bit just to reflect some things uh, that I've been working on, some of my scholarship, some things I've been doing over the last few years. Um, much of what I've been using is coming from something I just recently put out in this book, Southern Religion, Southern Culture. So if you're interested in that, it's University Press in Mississippi. It's essays in honor of Charles Wilson, and who's my advisor at the University of Mississippi. And uh, it's uh, uh, research on my what I've spent my academic life studying, which are missionaries to enslaved African people in the 19th century South and to Native Americans in the 1830s and 40s. Um, so I just want to start by saying thank you to uh, James, James Kessler, to Erwin. Thank you all so much for having me, the rest of the executive team for putting this on. Um, and uh, it is such a blessing to serve alongside such excellent and admirable hobbits. <laughs> I mean, PCA pastor. Um, uh, James said I have about 40 minutes, so I'll do my best. You must excuse me. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. And they say we Charlestonians are a lot like hints. From the last Lord of the Rings reference, I promise. When we gather, sometimes it takes us about 30 minutes just to say hello, right? So I'll do my best. Um, thank you to the good folks at Redeemer in New Orleans for hosting this. You may not be aware of this, but you touched my life from afar. My good friend and fellow history professor at William Carey suffered a horrific stroke here a few years ago. And this church uh, came alongside my brother and sister in a New Orleans hospital including uh, Toy Harmon, I don't know if she's here, but Toy brought his family meals, did their laundry for weeks, and uh, Pastor Kanata and your church, I just wanna say thank you for how you love my friends over in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Um, that's beautiful orthodoxy, I think, a beautiful picture. Um, also, I don't know if Scott Hutchinson and Lauren Richard are here. Are they here? Hey, how are y'all? Good to see you. Thanks for coming. Um, they're from the E Pluribus Unum Society. Uh, former mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrew, here created this organization. And I first met him here uh, at, a, at a conference in Jackson on the National Day of Racial Healing hosted by the William Winter Institute. And uh, Mayor Landrew told me at this talk, he said, Otis, if you're ever in New Orleans, uh, give me a call. And I want to come see you. And, uh, and so I called him and I said, Mitch, I'm coming to New Orleans. And he said, well, I'm kind of busy. I'm doing something for the president. It's infrastructure. And I said, what you, infrastructure for the nation? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's like overseeing our infrastructure right now. So spending to improve uh, our roads, our canals, just all that spending. Mitch is overseeing that. And, uh, but I'm so thankful for his work in the city. It has informed our work in Mississippi tremendously. And I just want to thank you both for your work with this organization. And thank you for coming. Can you give them a round of applause? <laughs> this organization 
organization does great work with faith communities and churches. Y'all work with many winners in Mississippi, right? And Robert Jones, Mississippi College graduate, and, uh, and others who are doing great things. And I love this quote from their site, and it's kind of the spirit of this quote in which I'm sharing some of what I'm sharing this afternoon. But it says, racism remains this nation's Achilles heel. If we do not face it and fix it, we will continue to suffer. We have a long way to go to fulfill America's promise of justice and equal opportunity to every American. To get closer to fulfilling that aspiration, we need a consensus about the history of racism in the U.S. and the effect that it has today. Facing our nation's dark truths is the first step in this healing. And uh, this has actually become, I don't know about this for y'all, but this has become a harder and harder thing in Mississippi in the last few years um, to really walk through this history uh, and, and talk about it. So I want to encourage you to keep up the good work. Thanks for coming. Uh, I also want to publicly thank uh, Mitch Landrew. He, uh, coming to Mississippi, gave us advice in Mississippi about how we can make Mississippi a more equitable society. And one of the first things he said was, you gotta get rid of this electoral college system across the state. And in Mississippi, you had to win a statewide election, and then you had to win in an electoral college to, that was created by the legislature to have statewide elected office. And it was essentially put into place after the Constitution of 1890 to prevent African Americans from winning statewide office. And he said, this is one of the first things you need to remove. And it was removed in a referendum in 2020. And so I want to thank Mitch for doing that. I also want to thank my friend and assistant pastor from Redeemer Jackson, Mr. Zach Owens. Where are you, Zach? There he is. Hey, Zach. Uh, Zach is a native Louisianian and rode down here with me. And he has the all-important duty of picking our restaurant for tonight. So Zach, uh, get some good recommendations, and we're going to have a good time going out to eat. But it's uh, here at Beautiful Orthodoxy. Um, I'm a ruling elder at Redeemer Church in Jackson, so I'm not a teaching elder. I'm a historian. I'm not a theologian. I'm a South Carolinian. I'm not a Louisianian. I'm a Clemson Tiger. I'm not a Louisiana State Tiger. So I could potentially be in some hot water right now. <laughs> But I did attend the wonderful Covenant Seminary in St. Yeah. Louis. That's right. You can check. You can apply for that. I learned a great deal from our amazing faculty there, including a lot of things I'm going to talk about tonight I learned from Jerem Barnes. This is not new, what I'm talking about. I learned a lot of this from Jerem. Um, and uh, I consider myself a churchman who loves Christ's bride, um, who's active on our session in our presbytery. How many committees, oh Lord? Uh, and at the denominational level. Uh, but my professional training is in American history. So my talk this afternoon will be less theological treatise or sermon or biblical exegesis and more reflections on the South, on race, on the lost cause, and, and kind of researching this, writing about it, and engaging the public with it in the South. So I'm largely ignorant in the ways of theology, but as my historian friend Bo Morgan in Hattiesburg always reminds me, ignorance has never stopped a good southerner from speaking his mind. <laughs> right? So I intend to speak my mind. 
Um, a little bit about my family. That's my beautiful wife, Julie. Julie has, uh, uh, she worked for the provost at Mississippi College. This was her speaking at the Southern Foodways Alliance. She has a way cooler job than I do and gets to go to way cooler conferences than I do, like barbecue conferences and this kind of stuff. <laughs> Uh, through the Southern Foodways Alliance. If you've heard of John T. Edge, she got to work with John T. there for a number of years. And she's at home with our family right now. Uh, we've been married almost 20 years. We met at Clemson University at, on her 21st birthday at the Esso Club, which I love to tell my friends when we were in seminary. <laughs> so uh, this is us from South Carolina, our family. Uh, that's Dr. Wilson, who I worked with at the University of Mississippi. Here we are, all three of us. Redeemer Jackson, and then this is our daughter, uh, Sadie Margaret Pickett, who passed away in 2017. Uh, we had her for about a, uh, a year and a half, and um, our church family walked with us through, I think, 13 months in the NICU. Um, uh, she was baptized in this picture by Elbert McGowan, and she passed away a week after her baptism. And I just want to encourage you, uh, you, can, you can Google that and see her little YouTube channel, and it's just her baptism and her funeral. And if you guys have ever preached a sermon or cared for a family of a child who's sick or has passed, Elbert is a textbook pastor. Just, there's no better pastor and shepherd of God's people who knew us and was with us in the hospital, and literally my wife looked at him, and we just both broke down this day because of how well our pastor knows us. And how well he knew Sadie. And uh, this is a, a, a nine-minute video on YouTube of her baptism and Elbert teaching our congregation the importance of covenant faithfulness. And it is one of the most beautiful pictures of baptism I can ever uh, encourage anyone to see. And then his sermon at her funeral is one of the most uh, I felt so loved and cared for, as did my family. And it's also on the YouTube channel, so if you want to check that out, I'd encourage you. Um, so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about today about Southern Presbyterianism, a pro-theological defense of slavery. Um, uh, I'm very much ascribed to the quote of Beth Barton Schweiger, who's a wonderful historian and who's written a book called The Gospel Working Up. And she's also written a lot of incredible things on Southern religious history. And she said in a wonderful article uh, one time, uh, we need to love our neighbor. And as historians, we really need to even love our dead neighbors. And so as a historian who's a Christian, our job is unique and distinct among historians. That, that the lives that we handle have to be so carefully presented and so true to what they wrote that if my brothers and sisters who are now in heaven are engaging in some way with my work or scholarship or seeing how I represent their lives, I'm going to see them in heaven, right? And, uh, and so I, I try to do my work as a scholar uh, as close to the documentation and the evidence of what they've written, what they've left, um, as I can as a human being. Uh, and so I just want to say that I, I think that's very important when we do history to let our subjects speak for themselves, to understand their context, to understand what they're a part of, to realize they're a part of larger systems often, and that they sometimes didn't even see like the system that they were a part of. And it reminds me very much of my, our own time and how historians are gonna be engaging the 21st century 
in 2500 or 2600 and blaming all of us for all the systems that we're involved in that we don't even see sometimes. And why didn't you speak into this? Why? And so I think that's very important that when we engage our historical subjects, we do so as historians, but we also do so as brothers and sisters in Christ, especially when we're talking about Christians. Uh, and so I wanted you to just kind of keep that in mind as we move forward. Um, there are three kind of uh, fields of Southern religious history that I work in. We call this historiography. It is a, it is a ways in which historians interpret the past, but also ways in which um, uh, we build on what other historians have said on the, in the past um, and, and incorporate their research into a particular field. So early on in Southern religious history, um, John Amy and Sam Hill argued a, a cultural captivity thesis, essentially that the church was so gripped by the culture that we often in the 19th century and 20th century reflected the culture more than we did what we believed in the Bible and the Westminster Confession. That especially in America, we're such an economic-driven people, we're such a frontier-driven people, we're such a fiercely individualistic people that oftentimes we would find passages to justify what we were already doing culturally and economically and socially, rather than seek to engage and critique those spaces to say, how are we being biblically orthodox and faithful in this space? Many, many did not. And so uh, this is a problem we see throughout church history in America that we often reflect what's happening around us. And they make these arguments in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, other scholarship comes along in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, Beth Schweiger and Charles Wilson begin to make an argument that actually the church has a huge impact on cultural movements and shifts. That the way that Christians and churches begin to interpret things and influence the culture Actually, man, the way the church goes, society will typically follow it. And one great example of that is our history in Presbyterianism in the PCUS, segregating along racial lines in 1874, 20 years before Plessy v. Ferguson. And the society and the culture kind of went, well, man, if the churches do it, this must be okay to do. Right? Or if the churches can be segregated and the churches uh, can, can keep African Americans from coming to worship in their church, certainly we can keep them from our universities and other public spaces. And so uh, that, that the church can be an incredible driver of culture in a variety of ways. Um, and then I want to commend to you the work of Paul Harvey. He's at Colorado State, probably one of the most preeminent historians doing Southern religious history today. An amazing scholar who writes a lot about Christianity and race in American history. Um, uh, his book, Christianity and Race in the American South, and um, uh, a, a, a Freedom's Coming, Religious Cultures and the Shaping of the South from the Civil War through the Civil Rights Era are both wonderful books. And so I just kind of wanted to give you some other sources to look at as you're kind of thinking and pondering Southern religious history and Southern religious, the Southern religious experience. Um, uh, of course, when you're talking about race and slavery uh, and Presbyterianism, you've got to talk about Robert Dabney and James Henley Thornton. 
Uh, and these two individuals, uh, Dabney's A Defense of Virginia and Ecclesiastical Relation of Negroes, I began to read this in seminary and I started asking questions about this history when I was in seminary. And one of those questions was, were there any Southern Presbyterians who valued the lives of African Americans such that their, ecclesia their ecclesiology and their polity were not driven by someone's status as a slave, that they would have equal membership in their churches, that they would have African Americans serving as elders or deacons, that they would have uh, integrated seating, or that there was advocacy for enslaved people. And uh, as someone who studies Presbyterianism in the 19th century South, there weren't a whole lot of those people. Most, I found, were RPCNA uh, missionaries who came into South Carolina and where they were, the RPCNA was anti-slavery. And they began to preach anti, against slavery in South Carolina. And there were families in South Carolina who actually emancipated their slaves because of the faithful preaching of God's word in South Carolina in 1803. Um, that is a rare exception. And those South Carolinians were actually forced out of South Carolina and they went to live in Ohio and Illinois. Um, and so there was a cost to this, not just economic, but uh, social. Um, uh, James Henley Thornwell wrote a Southern Christian view of slavery. He also wrote a, 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 an article, The Rights and Duties of Masters. Um, James Henley Thornwell's uh, views on the Civil War are very interesting. There's a great article in the Southern Historical Association Journal about his pro-unionism, actually, leading up to the war. Uh, he was over in, in England and in Ireland at the time. He's actually writing home in 1860 saying to the church, we ought not counsel secession, that we ought to uh, continue as an integrated uh, state in, in, the, in the United States, uh, and also was deeply hurt by our division uh, along racial lines, along north sectional lines, Presbyterianism, we're splitting along sectional lines, north and south, in the Civil War. Uh, the Baptists split along sectional lines, all over the issues of slavery, Methodists as well, and Presbyterians. And, um, and so these two gentlemen, I would encourage you, if you're kind of wrestling with this, like where does this stuff come from? What are the biblical arguments of this? Um, these are two uh, folks I would look at. Uh, Palmer, who is here in New Orleans. Uh, Palmer's uh, Thanksgiving Sermon of 1860 is one, not only just a very clear position on where Southern Presbyterians were on slavery, but also uh, Palmer is counseling secession. Uh, and this, this speech was actually a huge part of the state of Louisiana's consideration of secession. So again, the church kind of being this driving force in the culture, as opposed to saying, Man, all people are made in God's image. This, this would have been hard to say, but all people are made in God's image. And let's counsel caution before we go into secession. Uh, but Palmer actually says this. Palmer, by the way, was the first moderator of the PCUS in 1861. He pastored here from 1856 to 1902. Um, we have something in common that both of us are from Charleston and both trying to navigate the streets of New Orleans. Uh, <laughs> But uh, actually, Palmer Park here in New Orleans was named after Benjamin Morgan Palmer, and it was changed to um, 
Ellis Marsalis Park on July 1st, 2021. Uh, but his Thanksgiving sermon, he says this in 1860, the argument which enforces the solemnity of this providential trust, slavery, is simple and condensed. It is bound upon us then by the principle of self-preservation, that first law which is continually asserting its supremacy over all others. Need I pause to show how this system of servitude underlies and supports our material interests, that our wealth consists in our lands and in the serfs who till them, that from the nature of our products they can only be cultivated by labor which must be controlled in order to be certain that any other than a tropical race must faint and wither beneath the tropical sun. Need I pause to show how this system is interwoven with our entire social fabric, that these slaves form parts of our households, even as our children, and that too through a relationship recognized and sanctioned in the scriptures of God, even as the others. So here you have the theologians of the U.S. South, James Henley Thornwell, the only Southerner to write a systematic theology, Robert Dabney, cautioning and encouraging the church that going to war to defend slavery is not only biblical, but you're, you're, actually, you're actually going to defend the honor of your region. You're defending the way of life that we have, which is thoroughly biblical. Uh, and so a lot of these men are involved in the war. Dabney goes on to serve on Stonewall Jackson's chief of staff. Um, uh, this gentleman who I studied, John Gerardo, served in the 23rd South Carolina Volunteers, was a chaplain, was in uh, every battle in the Army of Northern Virginia, across Virginia. Um, but the, when I started asking these questions in seminary, I was told, hey, you might want to study the work of Charles Colcock Jones, John Lafayette Gerardo, John Adger, and... Um, and Thomas C. Stewart, all South Carolinians, all working with largely enslaved popul populations. And uh, what was their church life like? Well, when I came to Charleston, I went to study at the College of Charleston, and I came across Gerardo's baptismal records. And I came across his church records. Now, Pastor, we all have breeze now, right? And we have this stuff you can log in on a phone. Gerardo sat down every Sunday and wrote the names of every person who was in attendance. <laughs> right? In these record books. And who they belonged to. Okay? Um, and, and, and recorded every single baptism. And who the parents were. Um, Gerardo wrote his own catechism for enslaved people. And if you've not uh, looked at the works of the Law College Press by Caleb Cangelosi, we're releasing that catechism pretty soon. I've written the foreword for it. Just asking a question, why are we having a slave catechism? Why, why not the regular catechism? Why is it that right there should tell you this system is completely broken and it's crept into the church? Have you ever known a Christian church to counsel people not to read God's word? Yet, this was a real threat for Jared in Charleston. A real fear that a lot of slaves attending his church were reading. And that reading the Bible would give enslaved people a sense of liberty and freedom. 
especially if you're reading Exodus, or really the entire corpus of the Bible, which is bent towards freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from all kinds of things. And so Jerido, who was a cousin of Charles Jones, who is the father of slave missions, establishes this church, a mission church in Charleston, South Carolina. And here it is. It was uh, initially on Society Street. If you're ever in Charleston, there was a lecture hall on Society Street. Then it moved to this building, which is on Anson Street. Now it's uh, St. John's Reformed Episcopal Church on Anson Street. It's right across the street from Mother Emanuel, if you go to Charleston. It is the only church in the, in the antebellum context in Charleston that was African-American that was south of Calhoun Street. No other church, any other church that was predominantly African-American was north of Calhoun Street, which was the dividing line of race in Charleston. And Jared o begins to preach. And when they had their commissioning services, they invite James Henley Thornwell to come and, and speak at the inaugural service of this church. Um, as he begins to preach, more and more enslaved African people begin coming to the church. By the mid-1850s, it had over 600 people. And people were literally standing outside of the windows to hear Jared o preach. Um, Jared o recognizes quickly that the church is growing so fast that they're going to have to build a larger structure further down Calhoun Street, which is this church, Zion. In, Af in the African American community in Charleston, this is called Big Zion. Okay? Zion was built in the 1850s uh, through Robert Adger, who was a real estate investor in Charleston. And it was literally built uh, with enslaved African people in mind. When you read the minutes of how the session was processing this building, uh, it was taking considerations of the name of the building from enslaved people. So the enslaved people at, at Anson Tree actually named it Zion. Um, also, enslaved people wanted to sit in the pews in front of the pulpit. They did not want to sit in the balconies. Doug, you can come down from the balcony, man. <laughs> hey, Doug. <laughs> um, and, but in Charleston, and at Second Presbyterian Church in Charleston, every enslaved African who attended that church sat in the balconies. Which, if you've ever been in Charleston in August, one can barely breathe sitting in a balcony. Air conditioning literally saved our lives in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and so it was very important, and I got to interview uh, several members of what is now Zion Olivet Presbyterian Church, whose ancestors attended Zion. And they said that their grandfathers and great-grandparents used to say, we had the place of honor at Jared's Church. Now what's interesting about the structure of this church is you see these two stairwells coming in. It's literally segregated architecture. So that uh, uh, white... The whites who came to worship at the church in the mid-1850s had to take these steps up into the balconies. Um, a really interesting primary document about this church happened at the Democratic National Convention in 1860. That was the one where, uh, do you remember all the, uh, uh, the Democrats walked out 
because um, the, uh, Douglas didn't have a strong enough platform on slavery, and they walked out of the Charleston Convention and had their own convention in Baltimore and split the Democratic ticket, and Abraham Lincoln wins. Um, several Democrats are just blown away coming to Charleston and sitting in these pews and watching a white pastor pastor an enslaved African church. Um, and, and his preaching was, was very powerful. Uh, another thing Jared o did, which is very uncommon in the institution of slavery, is that he recorded the first in surname of every member. And when you study the institution of slavery, it's very uncommon to find a surname being recorded. It's typically a first name, and because people are considered chattel property, it's a first name, and that's it. But Gerardo recorded the first name and the surname, and then recorded who these individuals belong to. And he scratched out the middle part, servants of. And so we know one thing, we know some people chose the name Brown even though their owner did not have a last name Brown. So we know that some people said, I want this to be my name and I want to assert this in your church role book. We call this in history daily forms of resistance to the institution of slavery. And so the church became a place where there were subtle signs of resistance to slavery. Subtle signs of enslaved people saying, this is not how the kingdom should work. My name is written in the book of life. And we will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb together. Amen? <laughs> Yet, this man, Jerido, who the more I read, the more I'm just like, this is one of the holiest men I've ever, I mean, that understands God's word and such a powerful preacher. This man, who's probably the most sanctified man in America in the 19th century, was taken in by this system. So much so that it will be reflected in his church record books. Okay? And, and it gives me pause and caution to go, my goodness, what are we doing? What are we doing? And I'm not near Jared. I mean, I will never be near this man's holiness and his love of Christ's bride. He also included, these are baptismal records. And I just, I think about these children, and I think about them being baptized, and I think about early baptism in Virginia in the 1650s and 60s, where baptized Christians in the Anglican church, because your status in the church gave you civic status before we had separation of church and state, the, the Anglican Church in Virginia said, man, you are a member of God's church, and so you are free. You're a member of our church. You are free. And so all these enslaved African people in the 1650s and 60s started rushing to the Anglican Church to be baptized. And the House of Burgesses and the, and the powers that be in Virginia had to change the laws to say just because you're baptized does not mean you're free of your labor status. Brothers and sisters, what would happen if the church had said, we consider you free? And that was our legacy. Because that's what our polity teaches. And that's what our ecclesiology teaches. What would have happened? 
Big Zion, sadly, torn down in 1964 for urban renewal. This piece of real estate now, if you have in Charleston, South Carolina, <laughs> millions and millions and millions of dollars. And this is the last, uh, let me see if I can pull it up here. Oh, I don't have a pic their picture yet. But I, I got to interview, as I mentioned, a lot of the members, and they moved up north in the peninsula, but often talk about Big Zion. As it, and even in the 1930s and 40s, where in an African-American context, in Charleston, you were being segregated massively. There was violence toward African-Americans in Charleston. There always has been. And this church, Zion Olivet, even in the 1930s and 40s, did not blot out this record of Jared from their church history. And the pastor, Sandy Tom, said, don't forget from what rock under which you were healed. And do not forget our white brothers and sisters who preached the gospel faithfully. Um, now, a lot of what happens after the war in 1865 is there's this exodus of African Americans from white churches. A mass exodus. And this has been written about by a lot of historians. But at, at, at Zion, a couple things happen. Number one is... When the African-American community looks to have their first school, the very first school in South Carolina for, for now freedmen, it was in the basement of Zion Church. That's significant. Space is significant. And choosing that space is significant. That the very first schools that exist, exist in the basement of this church. The very first votes that are taken by freedmen during Reconstruction are in this church building. This letter was sent to Jared by Paul Trescott. Paul Trescott was a enslaved African member of Zion who was a class leader. Jared had all these class leaders who led prayers and the caring people, almost kind of like functional deacons. And Paul Trescott sends this letter to Jared along with other members of Zion in 1865. He said, Reverend Sir and Pastor, we the undersigned members of Zion Presbyterian Church Embrace this opportunity as one among the many good ones we have engaged in the past. And in doing so, you have our best wish for your health and that of your loving family, hoping all are engaging that blessing of good health and realizing that fulfillment of good works. Those that put their trust in him shall never want. The past relations we have engaged before the war, together for many years as pastor and people, are still in its bud in our every heart. Therefore, we would... We would well, it would, therefore, we would well you come still as our pastor to inform you that you, your past congregation will be the same in future until death provide past relations with you are considered the same. So you have freedmen in 1865 who can choose any church led by an African-American pastor right to Jared, this white Confederate chaplain, to come back and be their pastor in 1865. Um, and, and kind of what I'm saying is Relationships matter. <laughs> right? Uh, he pastored this church. This is the church on Zion Glebe Street. It's on Glebe Street, right next to the College of Charleston. Jared O becomes the first PCUS pastor to ordain African Americans to the office of ruling elder, including Paul Tresco uh, and six others in 1869. 
Jared also serves on a, on a committee for the denomination to consider the ecclesiastical relations to freedmen. And he gives a number of recommendations to the church of, on how to, how to go through. There's great pushback to that, obviously. And in 1874, the church decided, listen to this, in 1874 at the Columbus, Mississippi General Assembly, the PCUS decides to separate along organic lines was the term, which meant separation of races in the PCUS church. And Jared had to go back to Charleston and tell his congregation, my denomination just voted that I can no longer be your pastor in 1874. And so we had this moment from 65 to 74 where there was an integrated worship situation in Charleston, South Carolina. And um, the, ch the church decided this is not something we want to continue. So what is the legacy of this? And what's sad about Gerardo is he goes on in the 1870s. He teaches at Columbia Seminary. Um, he goes on to uh, speak at a number of what are called um, Confederate Memorial Day services. Um, Confederate Memorial Day is kind of part of the lost cause uh, vision of um, how the South ought to respond to Reconstruction. And uh, he gives this speech in South Carolina at Magnolia Cemetery in 1871. And he basically talks about, did our soldiers go and die in vain? And I just want to read you a couple of things from that speech, because this speech has a huge impact on Charleston and the ways in which Charlestonians, especially Christians, adopted the lost cause. And Dr. Wilson's work, this is his book, is all about this. It's called Baptized in Blood, The Religion of the Lost Cause, 1865 to 1920. And he argues it's a syncretistic civil religion. Of the lost cause creeps into our churches such that they're Confederate catechisms Confederate essay writing contest, Confederate Memorial Day, sacralization of the Confederacy, all of these things that begin to happen. And Gerardo says this, he says, to sum up what has been said, our brethren will not have died in vain if we, their survivors, adhere to the great principles for which they contended unto death. If we preserve an attitude of protest against these radical influences which threaten to sweep away every vestige of constitutional rights and guarantees to, this is a key sentence to pollute the fountains of social life. It's talking about racial mixing. Especially in a context where African Americans in South Carolina in 1871 were serving in the state legislature. It was the only state that had an African American majority in 1871. And ultimately to weld our civil and religious liberties in one common ruin. How will we do this? To our posterity, how will they know this? We must educate it and impart it to the young by making our nurseries, schools, colleges, channels for conveying from generation to generation our own type of thought, our own sentiment, our own opinion, and by stamping on their minds of our, of our children principles hallowed by the blood of patriots. He then goes on to say, there is a race which coming down through the centuries enveloped with antagonistic influences and hostile nationalities has stood out in perpetual protest against amalgamation with other peoples. 
talking about rights. And today preserves its characteristics as the current of the Great Western, flow, Western River flows into without blending with the multitudinous waters of the Gulf. And in his closing words, he invokes Stonewall Jackson. This is about 5,000 Charlestonians in Magnolia Cemetery, the Confederate Memorial Day. And here's what he says. Faint from the loss of blood and suffering from excruciating pain, he partly raised himself from his prostrate posture and in a tone of authority says to his second command, hold your ground, sir. The bleeding form of liberty rises from the earth before us and utters the same command, we must by God's help hold our ground. This audience, along with a lot of other Southerners who are held to this lost cause ideology, are bent on holding their ground. What does it mean to hold your ground? Statues. A way of life. New forms of slavery that are created in the 1890s. Segregation of state constitutions, mass incarceration of enslaved people, or formerly enslaved people that are now overwhelmingly African American in southern states. You hold your ground. People are still holding their ground on a number of Confederate markers across the country. Uh, this is uh, one of the last pictures taken at Mount Zion. That's Reverend Tom there. Uh, this is uh, the pews that I was talking about uh, at Mount Zion. I wanted to talk a little bit about where we're seeing people holding their ground in Mississippi and across the country. Um, this is my colleague, Dr. Lori Lawson. She teaches in social work. Um, Dr. Lawson and I are in charge of the CURE Committee at Mississippi College. Christians Understanding Race and Equity. And one of the first things we were tasked with was what to do with this marker on campus. It's called Love is Immortal. And it was a, a lost cause marker that was put up in the 1920s at Mississippi College with information about the Mississippi College Rifles, who were young men who went and fought for the Confederacy uh, and came back, uh, some of them came back, and this marker was put up in honor of their memory, and it's been on the campus since then. I often teach a Civil War class, and I take my students out here, and we read books by David Blight and others on memory in the war, and uh, this, this marker was filled with all kinds of lost cause rhetoric. And another thing that you see in lost cause rhetoric is very overblown <laughs> numbers. So there's a larger number here on the marker than actual people who went and served. There's a higher number of casualty rates if you actually, if you look at the documents, right? And so the marker is incredibly inaccurate. But then it also just has all kinds of language that conflate Christianity with the lost cause. And where we landed as a committee was a recommendation to the president to say, there are three statues of Jesus on this quad. We're about to stop. Three statues of Jesus. This space is for Jesus. And this is not representative of our Savior. And our president decided last year to remove that marker in Mississippi. And I just want to tell y'all what this took. This took lots of coffees 
Lots of taking people to lunch. Lots of encouraging people who've never thought about these things. Lots of people who are saying, I've got to hold my ground. We've got to protect our marker. Sons of Confederate veter veterans chapters. Going to lunch with people. Talking them through it. Helping them process. Teaching them the gospel. And that this is not in step with the gospel. It deeply hurts our students of color. And it's not worth keeping for that reason. And uh, I was encouraged by this because of Mitch Landry's work here in New Orleans. I said, if Mitch Landry can do this in New Orleans, we can do this in Mississippi. Um, in 2016, I started writing. I know James, my, my time. Go, go, go to okay. okay, I'm sorry. In, in 2016, I got to tell this story. In 2016, well, okay. When I was at the University of Mississippi, one time we were we were interviewing BB King for the Southern Studies Center, and uh, he made he was he was made an honorary professor. And we interview BB King, and he starts talking into the mic. He starts going on and on about playing the blues, and he gets to the 15 minute mark, and he said, "I'm sorry." Dr. Wilson, I did just become a professor. <laughs> I could wax on and on, and no one cares about that. Uh, but uh, if you've read anything I've written, you know that my experience of learning and being taught the lost cause as a child deeply has impacted my life. And you also know that I attended an African-American Baptist church in Charleston. And you probably also know that um, in 2001, the pastor of my church came up to my dorm room and saw all kinds of Confederate flags hanging out of our dorm room because South Carolina was trying to decide to take the Confederate flag down from the Capitol. And I saw my pastor, Herman Robinson, come in and just weeping. And I, I vowed that day, nothing is worth hurting my pastor. So I moved to Mississippi, and Mississippi was the last state in the country that had a Confederate emblem on its state flag. And I began to write about this publicly and speak about it. And I studied the history of the flag, when it went up, who put it up, why they put it up. And I wrote this article in 2016 for our state newspaper. And I told Julie, my wife, I said, I don't know where this is gonna be. <laughs> we might be out of a job at Mississippi College, I don't know. But, because in Mississippi, you don't really know things. People just make a phone call and you're gone. Like, it's kind of like, like an oligarchy, you know? It's kind of, and, uh, and so, but she said, you know, it's the right thing to do. And so we wrote this, and I tried, it was an appeal to Christians of the state, Christians in Mississippi. This is not worth holding on to. It's gripped us. It's an idolatry. And it's gripped our hearts. And we've given our adoration and our worship over to these markers and over to a cause of these markers made by human hands, right? These flags and these symbols. Why? Why are we holding on to it? Because Jericho told us to. After Charlottesville, I got every historian, U.S. historian in the state of Mississippi, we got together and we penned a letter to the state. And it was called Charlottesville, the Mississippi flag. And me and my buddy Robbie Luckett did this. 
and Robbie's at Jackson State University, uh, HBCU in Mississippi, uh, go beyond. And, um, and, and this was put together and it was signed by every historian working on US history in the state. Um, we started speaking, we started, I, I did a, pa a podcast called Red Flag, if you wanna check that out. I went on statewide conservative talk radio. That was an interesting experience. <laughs> <laughs> this is that, this is, this, me and my buddy Jamar went on this. Uh, it was uh, uh, something super, super fan radio, super talk radio, Mississippi. You know what it's called, Zach? I can't remember the name of it. Super talk, yeah, Paul Gallo show. And Jamar and I did this, and we didn't really know what was gonna happen when we left the office. They had, it was the only time in the history of the show they had to block calls from coming in. And then they just started getting text messages. And the, Paul Gallo started reading them to us, and he was like, man. And then I did this. I was stupid enough to go do this, okay? This was the Mississippi Humanities Council had this thing called Ideas on Tap. And they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get you, and we're going to get ahead to the Sons of the Confederate Veterans, and we're going to get a woman who's involved in the Civil Rights Movement over in Vicksburg, and we're going to get y'all on a panel, and we're going to talk about the flag. <laughs> you, you teach Mississippi history long enough to know it could get violent. <laughs> I'm just saying. I pull up in my little Camry, okay, and these big trucks pull in with Confederate flags and guns and people, guns on their hips and all kind of stuff. And I went, whoa. And it was Sons of Confederate Veterans members. It was people interested in this issue. And there are many African-Americans. Jackson is 85% African-American city. And y'all, we had a reasonable, rational, intelligent discussion. People were weeping at the end of it and embracing one another. And I looked at that in 2017, and I said, man, maybe this thing could happen in my lifetime. Okay. Mitch Landry takes down the statue in New Orleans, and this shows up. This is my buddy Carl Oliver. I called Carl this week, and I said, can I share our story? And he said, you just tell him an old redneck from Wyoming how to change your heart. <laughs> and I love this guy. We've become buddies. But Carl Oliver, after Mitch took down the statue, posted this on his Facebook page. He said, if the, and I use this term extremely loosely, leadership of Louisiana wishes to, in a Nazi-ish fashion, this is a state rep of Mississippi, burn books or destroy historical monuments of our history, they should be lynched. Let it be known, I will do all of my power to prevent this from happening in our state. This is months after I wrote my article. I've been speaking. I'm going, and you know the history of lynching in Mississippi. There are more lynchings per capita in Mississippi than there are any other state in the country. And this man says this in 2017. And I thought to myself, what do I do? And I said, you know, Jesus, you would befriend this guy. And um, I called my friend who's the Speaker of the House, and he's a Clinton resident. 
and he had just removed Carl Oliver from his, um, his uh, duties on his committee. And I said, is there any way I can meet with Carl? And he said, absolutely, we'll get that set up. And we had a cheeseburger and brands together. And I just looked over at Carl. I said, Carl, you're a Christian? He said, absolutely. I said, do you understand the, what you wrote, like the history of that and what it, what it tells people? And that you're so gripped by these monuments that you would hurt someone? He goes, man, I didn't mean it. He said, I was angry. And I said, man, I get that. I said, but, um, so you know, I think a really amazing thing moving forward in your political career, what if we started doing some work together? And what if you came out against the state flag? So that would be a real redeeming moment for you. You said, Otis, I have no interest in statewide office. I'm just a rep from Winona. I'm a funeral director. That's all I want to do. I have no interest in that. I said, okay, well, can we at least get a cheeseburger next semester? And he said, okay. We kept getting a cheeseburger, and we prayed together, and we talked together, and he would tell me about his grandchildren, and I would tell him about Sadie Margaret, and we got to be friends. And y'all, this guy was anathema in Mississippi. No one wanted to touch him with a 10 foot pole. And um, one day in 2020, Carl calls me. He said, Otis, how am I going to be remembered in Mississippi history? I said, Carl, it doesn't look good. <laughs> I, said, I said, just Google Carl Oliver. And, and it ain't going to be pretty, all right? And so I said, but, you know, it is it's history. And he said, well, you know, I've got these grandkids. He said, I really would like to set the record straight so they remember their granddad differently. And I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, I think I'd like to come out publicly against the state flag and have it changed. And I said, well, Carl, I think that's a beautiful picture. And I think that's something that will be remembered. And we got to work on his statement together. And yeah, several drafts. So. <laughs> <laughs> and the final draft was really good. <laughs> and I'll just tell you, that statement from Carl Oliver let all kind of conservative Mississippian reps feel freedom to make a statement. Mm -hmm. Because if he could make a statement, it gave them room to maneuver. And Speaker Dunn will tell you to this day, that was a huge moment in that flag coming down. This is our new flag. Okay. So, to quote Jack Collins, don't hear what I'm not saying. I did not bring down the state flag in the city. It was a grassroots movement. Our African-American brothers and sisters began this movement in the 1970s and 80s. No one listened. Another movement came along in the early 2000s to change the flag in a referendum and it failed. Another movement comes around in 2016, but I got to be a part of the movement. I got to be a part of it. I got to see y'all the Holy Spirit work in such a powerful way to move the hearts of Mississippians to do this. Now it came on, it came right after the death of George Floyd. But people began to realize it's not worth holding on to these symbols. 
What's the, what time you say? You got like two minutes. Two minutes. You got I want to encourage you to a couple things. I've seen people in Mississippi Presbytery confess <laughs> racism on the floor of our Presbytery and break down weeping. I've seen people in the Mississippi Valley Presbytery who could have been accused of being critical race theorists stand up with me on credentials committee and pass a history exam that now includes Matthew Anderson, that now includes Francis Grimke, that now includes Samuel Cornish, and women in church history, <laughs> and also makes every board man in the Mississippi Valley Presbytery read the G PCAGA reconciliation report on ethnic, on ethnic reconciliation uh -huh. and reflect on race as they're going to pastor in Mississippi. And that was David Stern. That was God Waters. Yeah. If that doesn't, if they don't stand up for this, it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. I have seen men labor on our report on women's roles in our presbytery, fight for women to be in the room. I'm trying to encourage you that there are good things happening. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there are people that can be moved by the power of the Holy Spirit by relationships, by love. Now, you're going to see me at GA, and you're going to see me with all kinds of brothers. These are my friends in Mississippi. These are my friends in South Carolina. I love them. I call them. I have relationships with them. When I had a dear brother have a, have a photo, be photographed with Confederate flags, I drove to him to meet with him. Four hours. Because he's worthy of respect dignity and honor and having someone come alongside you in love to say, brother, I think you're in error here. And it was received. And I saw that man's son at GA the next way. He said, Otis, we don't, we don't agree on much. Thank you for showing my dad love. And I want to encourage you that a lot of these men, they're scared. They're concerned about their ministry, that they're not doing the right kind of ministry that it's not valued, and I think they need a friend. Mm -hmm. And what I want to encourage you to do before GA, and I'll stop, what I want to encourage you to do before GA is someone you vehemently disagree with, that you find loathsome in our denomination, I want you to pray for them by name. I want you to email them. I want you to say, GA, can I buy you a cup of coffee or buy you lunch? Mm -hmm. And I don't want you to talk about denominational policy. I want you to be their friend and love them. And y'all, that praying together and that eating together and breaking bread, it's going to bring us together like this. And it's going to take time, but it's worth it. My daughter, when she passed, a grief counselor came up to me and said, Otis, you, you and Julie need to do some grief therapy. And, and she looked at us and she said, she's worth grieving. And I want to encourage you. In Romans 12, it talks about, I got it here. I don't quite remember all this stuff. But I love this passage. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And your brothers and sisters are worth, they're worth it. Go and get them and love them into them. That's the only way we're going to come together. Amen. Amen. Amen.